Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is really good to have you with us. Let me echo uh, Lachlan's welcome and Tullers. And, uh, you know, for what might, God willing, be our uh, third final Sunday of gathering only online. Uh, lots of you know I'm not uh, much of a runner. Um, it does seem to me, though, that kind of in the longer uh, races, say 10Ks and up, something like that, there is a pattern that often happens in the second half of a race, often um, maybe around the halfway to the kind of three-quarter mark. Uh, you know, everything gets a little bit sluggish and the legs don't quite go through in the same cadence. But then from there, really, to the end of the race, um, sometimes the very fact that the finish line is getting closer itself becomes... Uh, something of a motivation and, and people find themselves picking up the pace and, and really kind of accelerating towards the finish line. And uh, we know that uh, for lots of people, the last term has been very heavy going and uh, I'm very encouraged by your perseverance. But as October 31 draws near uh, and God willing, we're able to begin gathering together again in person, uh, I'd love to encourage us to spur one another on to try and pick up that pace as we near that deadline and to kind of accelerate towards it. Um, I was chatting to one congregation member this week who, who just shared with me he's realised how much he and his wife need to become really intentional again with their diary and just kind of managing their calendar and uh, thinking about opportunities they have to catch up with brothers and sisters from church, people they haven't seen for at least a term now. And uh, to find out how they're going and to spur them on to keep walking with the Lord. And that is such a good posture for all of us to try and take into the next couple of weeks and months together. But as Locke said, we're back in uh, John's Gospel and today we're here at John chapter 11, one of the most well-known incidents in all four of the Gospels. And with very good reason, because uh, what Jesus does here, uh, even in his ministry, is really singular and extraordinary. Uh, yes, there are two other occasions in the Gospels where we learn of Jesus uh, bringing a dead person back to life again. Uh, there is the son of the widow in Luke chapter 7. There's the daughter of the synagogue ruler in Mark chapter 5. But on both of those occasions, the restoration to life was much, much closer to the time of death than what we find here in John chapter 11. In fact, on both of those occasions, uh, neither of them had even been buried yet. But here in John chapter 11, not only has Lazarus been buried, uh, but enough time has passed that his sister expects her brother's body has already begun to decay. And yet at the very heart of the passage stands what may be one of the most extraordinary I am statements that Jesus utters anywhere in this gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Except that's not quite right, is it? That's not quite what Jesus said. Or at least it's not quite how he finished what he said. What he actually said is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And you see, with those last four words, this chapter is transformed from being a remarkable account about a remarkable event that, that took place a very long time ago. 
into an urgent gospel invitation that addresses even us here this morning. It's not enough for us simply to see the things that Jesus did or even to hear the things that he said about himself. What really matters is once we've seen what he does and we've heard what he says, do we believe it? Now, we're all talking about roadmaps at the moment. If you want a roadmap for where we're going this morning, uh, three headings to take us through. Uh, The raising of Lazarus reveals Jesus' glory. Uh, The raising of Lazarus strengthens our faith. And then the raising of Lazarus anticipates Jesus' greater resurrection. So first, the raising of Lazarus reveals Jesus' glory. Of course, right from the word go, this is what John's gospel has been about. Um, At the start of last term, uh, John's magnificent introduction to his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And, And one of the ways that John has shown us the glory of Jesus that has been so clearly revealed is he has kept telling us some of the miraculous signs that Jesus did. So chapter 2, verse 11, after turning water into wine at the wedding, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And then after that, by the healing of an official son and making a crippled man walk again and feeding a great big crowd from the contents of a lunchbox and walking on water and giving sight to a man born blind. And now here in chapter 11, exactly the same thing is going on as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' glory is being revealed. And and Jesus makes that clear for us twice, first of all in verse 4, and then again in verse 40. So the very first verse, we we learn that Lazarus is ill, uh, Lazarus being not only verse 2, the brother of Martha and Mary, um, Mary the one who famously anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and then wiped his feet with her hair. But Lazarus also, verse 3, is himself a dearly beloved friend of Jesus. But in verse 4, Jesus responds, he's heard the message about Lazarus being sick, in verse 4 he responds, this illness will not end in death, no, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus already knows how this is all going to end. Jesus already knows what is about to go down. Jesus understands better than anyone else that something much bigger is at stake here than even the life or death of Lazarus. Now, of course, Lazarus does die. Jesus says that very plainly in verse 14. But by the time the chapter has finished, not only is Lazarus no longer dead, but the glory of God has been revealed. But notice, the the glory of God is revealed chiefly as God glorifies his Son. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And that's why over in verse 40, when uh, Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And then the next verse, he begins praying out loud, 
thanking his heavenly father for hearing him. And the reason he prays out loud like this is for the sake of the people who are listening to him so that it might be clear to everyone that when Lazarus responds to the voice of his Lord calling him from the tomb, that is because the father has responded to the voice of his son calling out to him in prayer. And so the father and the son are working together here. They are working as one. The father glorifies the son and the son reveals the glory of the father. And all of this happens as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, I think in some ways this can actually be a little bit difficult for us because uh, rightly, in so many respects, the raising of, of Lazarus really dominates our attention. Uh, it is such an extraordinary thing to have happened. But just like all of the other miraculous signs in John's Gospel, so too with the raising of Lazarus, it's not an end in itself. It's a sign that points beyond itself. For more amazing than the raising of Lazarus is the glory of the one who raised Lazarus. The one who stood there before a grieving sister, declaring himself to be the resurrection and the life. Promising that the one who believes in him will live even though they die and that whoever lives by believing in him will never die. And if those words were all we had to go on, if the only evidence we had was Jesus' words, then perhaps all we could do really is to play C.S. Lewis's game of liar, lunatic or Lord. But you see, when we then watch Jesus stand before the grave, confidently overruling every thought that death has to be the final word, not only in the age to come, but even in this age. And then when we see him call the dead man out from the grave and the dead man actually responds, well, what we are seeing then is the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you believe it? Because this is really the second thing we need to say about the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus strengthens our faith. Uh, there are many narrative surprises in this passage, but none so surprising, I think, as the first word of verse 6. Because see, verse 3, the sisters send word to Jesus that their brother, whom Jesus loves, is ill... Uh, verse 5, we learn that Jesus not only loved Lazarus, he also loved Martha and Mary. And you put those two things together and surely we expect that when Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, he will move very quickly to go and restore his friend to full health. I mean, if he did it for the daughter of the synagogue ruler in Mark chapter 5, how much more will he do it for the beloved friend, a member of a beloved family? But verse 6, he doesn't move quickly at all. In fact, he stays where he is for two more days. And the surprising word at the start of verse 6 is the word, so, therefore. In other words, 
Jesus doesn't stay where he is in, in spite of the fact that he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He, he stays there precisely because of the fact that he loved them. And to make sense of that, we need to read again what Jesus says in verse 15. Because in verse 11, he's just told the disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's speaking about Lazarus's death. They don't understand that. So verse 14, he says very plainly, Lazarus has died. And then verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe. See, Jesus has a very clear pastoral goal here, doesn't he? He has a very clear pastoral outcome that he is working towards. He wants the disciples to believe. He wants them to believe in him. He wants them to believe something about him. He hasn't yet explained what that is. It will become clear, but, but he wants them to believe. And yet, in order for this goal to be achieved, it is necessary that Jesus not be there when Lazarus died. Why? Well, uh, let's keep going and we'll see if we can work it out. Uh, Jesus arrives in verse 17. He learns that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha hears that Jesus has arrived. She goes out to him at once in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, Mary comes out to see him. She says exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, different words, but the crowds in verse 37, they, they have exactly the same kind of thought. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Uh, I don't know if you've got into this show, but over the course of the last term, uh, some of the family members uh, we have uh, have enjoyed watching the recent Marvel series, uh, What If? Um, it basically, it kind of explores the alternate timelines in the multiverse, and they come up with all sorts of words like multiverse to explain it. But alternate timelines, if kind of key moments uh, from the Marvel movies and the MCU uh, had, had happened differently. But you see, Mary and Martha and the crowds, they're not asking the what-if question. As far as they're concerned, they don't even think it is a question. There's not a doubt in their mind. It's an absolute certainty. If Jesus had been here, Lazarus would not have died. I think one of the really helpful things about this observation is it makes clear that these are people who already believe in Jesus. They have seen his miraculous signs. They have listened to his teaching. They have understood so much about his power and love and mercy and kindness. And they have responded by trusting him. They are believers. And, and if we really are still not quite sure if that's right, we, we have Martha's confession in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she said, I believe that you are the Messiah and the Son of God who is to come into the world. These are believers. But remember verse 15, Jesus' clear pastoral goal is so that you may believe. And it's not just verse 15, we see the same goal there in the question that we've already talked about from the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? And it's there again in verse 40 when Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So we put it all together 
And, and what becomes clear is that these people are somehow believers who still need help to believe. They are believers whose faith in Jesus is absolutely clear, but it's, it's not yet as all-encompassing as the faith of which Jesus is worthy. They have great confidence that Jesus could have dealt with Lazarus's sickness. They don't yet understand that his power and love and mercy and kindness are even greater still, even to the point of overcoming Lazarus's death. In other words, they are believers who need help to believe. And I have to tell you, I find this enormously comforting because it's how I often feel. I'm not a great reader of Christian biographies and I'd hate you to interpret this as me suggesting you don't read Christian biographies. Um, but I do know someone who says that when you read the, the kind of biographies of great Christian men and women from the past, it, it sometimes feels like you're kind of reading a, about a sort of Christian superhero. Um, they're, they're just so fearless and they're so faithful and they're so godly and they're so steadfast and they're so unshakable in the face of trouble and it can feel a little bit daunting a little bit unachievable but then you come to the bible and you read through the gospels and you come to a moment like this one in john chapter 11 and you find these believers who still need help to believe and you think ah yes i can relate to that If my doctor were to ring me this week and tell me I had just weeks to live, would it make me fearful? To be honest, very possibly. If my doctor rang this week and told me that someone in my family had just weeks to live, would it feel like my world had collapsed a little bit? I'm almost certain of it. But do I still trust that Jesus is my Lord who has dealt with my sin by his death on the cross and given me life by his resurrection from the dead? With all my heart. In fact, these are some of the things I hold to be true with a deeper sense of conviction than almost anything else I could name for you. And maybe this isn't really you, but I definitely feel myself to be a believer who sometimes still needs help to believe. And I know that my trust in Jesus is never as large and never as all-encompassing as the trust of which he is worthy. And so here he is, longing to help his disciples believe that he is the resurrection and the life and that the one who believes in him will live even though he dies and whoever lives by believing in him will never die. And you see, for a lesson as profound as that, something much more is needed than simply him having been there in time to prevent Lazarus from dying in the first place. For a lesson as profound as that, Lazarus needs to have died. And he needs to have been buried. 
And he needs to have been in the tomb long enough that no one could possibly claim that this was merely a late-stage resuscitation. In order for Jesus to teach his people that he is the resurrection and the life, only a resurrection would do. And it's very striking that at the end of the chapter, even Jesus' opponents don't dispute the basic fact of what he has just done. They just respond to it very poorly, with hard hearts that are full of self-interest. But friends, since Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we have solid grounds for believing that he really is the resurrection and the life. And that the one who believes in him will live even though they die. And the one who lives by believing in him, well, in fact, they will never die. Because such is the eternal life that he gives. And absolutely, this won't do away with every fear that we may have about death. It certainly won't undo our experience of grief. It is so comforting to know that when Jesus saw Mary's grief and, and he saw the grief of the crowd, he didn't rebuke them for it. Even though he knew what he was about to do, he didn't rebuke them for it. In fact, he himself was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and he was angry and indignant at the intolerably high cost of human sin and rebellion against God. Because death is the wages of sin. And then when they showed him to the place when Lazarus was buried, he was not unaffected by it, even though he knew what he was about to do. He wept. And so it's not that knowing Jesus is the resurrection and the life does away with our experience of grief. It does not. But friends, it does thoroughly transform it so that we don't grieve like others who have no hope. Because our hope is Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Our hope is in the one through whom a believer will live even though they die and through whom the one who lives will never die. And so the resurrection of the raising of Lazarus is here to strengthen our faith. Do you believe it? Finally then, and very briefly, the raising of Lazarus anticipates Jesus' greater resurrection. It's very striking that uh, at both the beginning and end of this passage, we kind of have our attention drawn to a threat to Jesus' life. Uh, In verse 8, the disciples remind him of the Jewish leader's previous attempt to stone him to death. In verse 53, they hatch a plan to take his life, uh, reasoning that it was better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Uh, They are completely unaware that this is God's plan exactly. But then on the third day, Jesus himself also rose from the grave. Death could no more keep hold of him than it could keep hold of Lazarus when Jesus called him. 
But there are differences as well, aren't there, between the raising of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus came out from the grave because he was called by the Lord. Jesus came out from the grave because he is the Lord. And because this is the power and the authority that God has given him. Do we not remember what Jesus said in in chapter 10 at the end of last term? The great passage, the good shepherd passage, Jesus said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. There's one difference. Another difference, uh, Lazarus came out from the grave still wearing the burial clothes. Jesus came out from the grave and the burial clothes were left in the tomb. Because this is the life that Jesus has taken up now, this side of the cross. It is eternal life that is never again to see decay. And therefore, it's this very eternal life that Jesus promises to everyone who believes in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, they will never die. Do you believe it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you gave authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Thank you that he has authority not only to do that himself, but also to grant it to everyone who believes in him. Thank you for the testimony of him raising Lazarus from the grave. Thank you that that is there to strengthen our faith and to help us as believers to believe in a way that reflects all of which Jesus is worthy. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, We're going to respond to God's word.